The gospel reading is from John chapter 11, verses 17 through 48. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. It's going to be very distracting. Okay. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is, com- who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been out with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with the stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, Jessica, thank you. That was definitely one of the more entertaining scripture readings in a while. Thank you to Corbin. Uh, I wouldn't have given her such a long passage to read. They're normally shorter. I feel like such a heel if, I, if I'd known she was going to be up there with the baby, but thank you for doing that. She um, actually flew with two little ones all the way to Turkey by herself, so she's pretty tough. Thank you for that. 
Um, when I was in uh, college and later seminary, apologetics, this idea of defending the faith was all the rage. Books were coming out left and right to defend the faith, to give answers uh, for why believe in Jesus. And apologetics is kind of a strange word. You kind of conveys, well, I need to give an apology for believing anything. I need to give an apology for the Christian faith, and maybe that's true today. But it doesn't mean giving an apology. It means defending it. It means giving kind of a rational basis to believe. And I think this practice, this discipline is fine and helpful if the objective is appropriately modest. When we start talking about Christian proofs, as Aquinas did back in the Middle Ages, or evidence that demands a verdict, as we did in the 20th century, when we sort of treat belief as virtually inevitable, not just reasonable, but as unassailable. How can you disagree with this? How can you not see the truthfulness of this? It often has, uh, strangely, a tendency to backfire because what that does is it sets up this expectation that anything less than impregnable, impregnable, how many syllables is in that? Impregnable certainty is a critical weakness to the whole system. If you discover a piece that doesn't fit, if you discover a puzzle piece left on the board, then the whole thing doesn't make any sense. And often this stereotypically happens with college freshmen who leave the church and they go to biology 101 or physics 101 and they see this whole new world that they're not aware of. And instead of understanding, well, how might this fit? It's just a piece that doesn't fit. And so therefore, they sort of give up and the whole thing topples. And I think that in apologetics, we don't need to be pursuing impenetrable certitude. But One thing does strike me about this passage that we read and about the story of Jesus in general as a sort of reasonable confirmation of faith, and that is that he is not the sort of Messiah that anyone would choose to make up. He's not a God that the church could use in his truthfulness to consolidate their power. If anything, he undermines anyone seeking to consolidate power, especially in the name of institutional religion. He's not a God that the church could, should be able to use and manipulate to force and coerce people to believe. He's often been used that way, and he's used that way today, but it's more of a distortion of Jesus, not the biblical Jesus. The Jesus that we find in the Gospels is often strange, often enigmatic. He often gives answers that provide more questions, or he doesn't answer at all. He walks away from direct questions. And sometimes, if we're honest, I think that we would say that sometimes the Jesus in the Gospels is disappointing. He's disappointing for what we really want in a God. Because who would make up a God on a cross? Who would make up this story of Israel putting its hopes in this one person who ends up dead, who ends up crucified by the collusion of state and religious power? 
who would want a dying God, especially not one that says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to die also. You're going to follow me into these places of hurt, these places of darkness. You're going to have meals with the sick and the poor, just as he did. In this story, it's strange because what John tells us is that he leaves his friends in their moment of grief, in their moment of suffering. And then he does this miracle that, as I said earlier, creates as many questions as it answers. He's not the sort of God that any of us would dream up and say, this is the kind of God I want to follow. He doesn't validate our power, and he doesn't come and give us just hallmark sentimentality. He's inviting us, in fact, to the back of the line, to give up our seats of power, to eat with the poor, with the sick, and to live, I think this miracle tells us, in its inconclusiveness, to live in a position of contingency, to live in a state of dependency. Here we see that God and Jesus takes your pain seriously, but he doesn't fix it. And becoming a Christian then is not the, the end of grief, as many people would want to paint it. But it's, it is the beginning of having God sit with you in your grief and understand it. Finding a God that is not distant from your suffering. And sometimes that's not what we want. And that's not what these sisters wanted either, as they are grieving their brother Lazarus. Now, we didn't read because the passage was already long enough, but back in verses 5 and 6, John tells us, Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer where he was. What? John, come on, you got to work on your syntax here. you got to work on your sentence structure. This does not work. You don't put a so there. Jesus loved this family, so he didn't run to them when they were grieving. He didn't stop what he was doing and go and help them. If you love someone, you don't loiter around for two days and then go visit them in the hospital, right? You make haste. Jesus loved this family, so when he heard that Lazarus was dying, he waited. He took his sweet time, and when he gets there, Lazarus is now what? He's dead. So Martha, who's no shrinking violet by any means, says to Jesus, Jesus, if you had been here, can you just imagine her just with her arms folded and just saying, Jesus, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Do you guys talk to God like that? If, you are, if you're a Christian, do you ever say things like that to him? This is really strange because Jesus' perspective on this delay, his answer to her, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Well, that's interesting There's something, Martha and Mary, that you need to know and you need to believe, and so therefore I left you in your grief for a couple of days so that you could know it. That's very cold comfort, right? If you have some significant loss and someone tells you, well, maybe God's trying to teach you something in this moment, you want to 
smack them in the face, right? Don't give me that. Don't put this on me. My immaturity is the cause of this person's loss or me losing this child or someone special to me. Jesus purposely delayed so that he wouldn't get there in time to give his disciples a chance to believe. So what in the world is he talking about here? It seems kind of callous. It seems very cavalier. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, I was a social science major. I'm not very good at math, but do the math with me here. Check my math here. He heard about it two days after the fact and then waited two more days. So that's two plus two is four. That's four days total. So even if he had heard and left immediately, the likelihood is that he would have arrived when Lazarus had already passed. Okay, thank goodness Jesus is off the hook here. He wasn't being callous, right? That is not actually what John is saying. The math is not there for that purpose. Because what's going on here is that there is this pretty common belief that When someone died in that day, that there was a soul that departed from the body, but the soul sort of stayed in the vicinity of the body. It hovered over the body for how many days? Three days. So when you die, you're sort of dead, and then after three days, you're really, really dead. There's no coming back from this, right? Well, that's why they were perplexed, most likely, that he didn't hurry. Because if you believe Jesus is the Messiah, there's no reason that he needs to be there to heal Lazarus. He could have just, you know, thought about it in his mind as it happens in other places. The reason that they're upset with him is most likely because of this math, this sequence of events. Because by now, what Martha and Mary are telling him is that Look, Jesus, it's all done. The game is up. He's not just dead, sort of in an open casket, looking nice and looking like the person we remembered. He is now a stinking, rotting corpse, and his soul has departed him forever. Nothing you can do, game over, end of story. Now, they do believe that Jesus is special, They do believe that their friend, this rabbi, has some sort of power because they say, had you been here? So they grant that was he present, he could have sustained Lazarus' life. He could have perhaps healed this sickness. But what they need here is not now just an unusually powerful friend who happens to occasionally work miracles. They don't need Jesus to sustain life. They actually need the one who can create life. They need the Lord of life, the God over life, the creator. So is that who Jesus is? Well, maybe you're not sure yet, and that's perfectly reasonable because Martha is not sure yet. Lord, if you had been here, this is verse 21, and now we're picking up what, in what is printed in your bulletin. If you had been here, he wouldn't have died, but I know whatever you ask from God, 
God will give you. Martha is expressing a kind of faith, but it's sort of that platitudinous hallmark faith. It's, it's kind of like when we preface our future actions with, if God is willing. I want to go to this college, if God is willing, I'll get in. It's that sort of kind of trite, not incorrect, but sort of trite, platitudinous type of faith. Jesus tells her, your brother will rise again. And Martha, I know, I know Jesus. On the last day, sure, I know this. We both know this. You're not telling me anything new, Jesus. We both know about God's promises for the future. But you see, friends, Jesus is not saying here, stop grieving. Everything's going to be fine. Stop your tears because one day Lazarus will rise again. And this is so important because this is really gets to the crux of sort of the di- diversion of spiritual paths that Christianity offers. Because on one hand, he is answering the sort of Marxian idea that religion is the opiate of the masses. And you believe it because, well, life isn't so good here, but if you stick it out, then when you get to heaven, life's joys there will make life here make sense. And it will kind of more than even out. It'll be worth it. But he doesn't say life is full of sadness and grief, but cheer up, Martha and Mary, because one day something incredible is going to happen. And he also puts to rest this easy believism of Christianity that the resurrection is somehow we should believe it because it's unfalsifiable. You can't disprove a future resurrection, but it doesn't really cost anything to believe it. It doesn't really have to mean anything to our present in order to just say that one day that's going to happen. And therefore, you can go through life encountering obstacles and difficulties, believing in the resurrection, and yet it doesn't really change the way that you interact with your daily life. It doesn't really change the reality of death now. And I guess the question that we should ask ourselves, having been through Easter... Does it change the way that you think about death now, that you think about death on a Thursday? Do you think about your own dying in the future? Does what Jesus did on Easter, does it change your life? Does it change the way you face obstacles and difficulties? Martha, you're talking about a day far off in the future where heaven's joys will hopefully make up for all of your suffering here, but I am the resurrection, Jesus says. You see, he's talking about something different. He's talking not about this future resurrection that hopefully will be kind of a counterweight to all of our sadness, but he says right now, presently, in front of you, Martha, I am the resurrection. That is very different. And it's also if not true, unimaginably cruel and staggeringly blasphemous as well. Because all of his hearers would have heard, I am, I am, 
and they would have known exactly what he is talking about and what he is referring to. This is how God reveals himself to Moses. When God hears his people's cry and says, I hear them and I want to rescue them. I am is the name of God's presence. It is of his liberating, emancipating presence for his people in Exodus. Tell them, tell Pharaoh, I am has sent you. This represents God's love of humanity, his eternal embrace. And what Jesus is saying is that is standing here, Martha, right in front of you. That's who I am. He's saying he is an invasion of past and future into the presence, into the present. And then he says, do you believe this? Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe this in town? And she responds, as probably many of us do, with a very theologically correct statement. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And these are the sort of answers that pastors have to give when they go for ordination exams. I believe this. Do you believe this? Yes, I do. Tell me, what, tell me about it. And they can be very theologically correct. They can be very theologically rich and yet mean nothing or mean very little. You see, what Martha's doing here is she's still doing sort of theological arithmetic. And what Jesus is doing is he is moving on to fluid mechanics and string theory. Like he is talking at a whole different dimension than what she is able to recognize. And I'm not throwing her under the bus because that's us. That's me. That's how I think. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. She had a very well-developed theology, especially about the future, but it was somewhat irrelevant to her present suffering. So for her and for us, he decides to pour out some of that future into her present in a way that he doesn't always do, but he does it as a teaching moment and also as an act of love to these people that he cares for. He decides to pour out some of the future and some of the past promises into the present. He's going to raise Lazarus physically now. And she objects. By this time, there's a bad odor, for he has been there four days. So here's kind of her thought process. You are the Messiah. Had you been here, you could have sustained his life. You could have perhaps raised him from the dead. You are the Son of God, but don't roll away the stone because, man, it's going to reek. That's kind of the level of her thinking. Don't go over there, Jesus, because you're going to smell this dead, rotty corpse. It's funny in a way, but isn't it easier to believe in our lives that God is powerful enough to have prevented whatever challenging, difficult circumstances that we're experiencing now? Isn't it easier to believe that He could have prevented that rather than believing that He can sustain us through it? that he can carry us through it. It's very easy because it doesn't cost us really anything. It might cost us a part of our faith to say he's powerful enough 
providentially to have arranged this to not have happened, but to, it really cost us to say, I believe that he can walk with me through this and that I can emerge on the other side. And it's easier, too, to believe intellectually that he can work out some future resurrection but not have the power to bring some sign into the moment, into the present. New life right in the middle of death. And what I think is going on here as we close is that God, that we give God the power of the future, but perhaps we're much less willing to give Him the power over our heart, to give Him the space in our existential lives to carry us through the circumstances that we wouldn't have chosen, and we don't know why He chose them for us. It seems Jesus allowed His friend to make to die to make a point, which seems a little bit cold and, and clinical. But John tells us, strangely, it was because he loved them. Remember the so, the therefore? Because Jesus loved him, he waited. Now, maybe this is not what we want. And I confess to you, it's not what I often want. But we shouldn't patronize Jesus and say this is exactly like every other religion and every other pathway to God, because it's not. Or we shouldn't say that it's clearly a myth because this is something that humans would have invented. See, this is not something any of us would have invented. But what we do know is that it's not merely a cold, detached universe that we live in, where everything happens by chance in some unending sequence of chances until the sun burns out, or I guess becomes a red giant first and then absorbs all of us. I think that's probably the right sequence. For you scientists in here, I have to be accurate. But one day that's going to happen, and is everything just a cold set of chances until then. And he's sort of undermining that, but he's also undermining the easy sentimentality where a religion is beholden to every human wish that we get to design the outcome from our strictly earthbound perspective. Jesus sees weeping people and he moves toward them. Jesus as we are told in Colossians, that created and sustains the whole world. He sees his people, his friends, weeping. And what does he do? He weeps with them. He doesn't stand far off. He does not stand and just analyze the situation, but he moves toward them. He is moved and troubled by their circumstances. And friends, he is moved and he is troubled by yours. And even when you doubt his presence, you doubt the, that he can carry you, you question him, he's moved with compassion. God is standing here in Jesus at a tomb weeping. The creator himself burst into tears. And what happens? Lazarus comes out, and then there's this whole other side episode of the Pharisees and the chief priests. What do they do? They call a meeting. 
So from that day, they made plans to put him to death. They see Jesus weeping. They see him raise Lazarus from the dead. And then they say, let's get together and concoct a plan to kill him. I mean, this is the craziest thing ever. This is just bonkers. Why, how could you see that and want to kill them? He calls Lazarus out of the tomb, and the crowd doesn't go wild. They don't stand up and cheer, but they think, we got to get rid of this guy. Because why? Because he threatens our hold on the world. He threatens our understanding of the world. He threatens our power. And isn't that interesting that this entire project that the Pharisees have going on is in some ways part of and maybe protective of the diseased world, protective of death? The, Pharaoh, the Pharisees here are the stand-in for Pharaoh. I am comes to them and they say, we don't want anything to do with you. And what does it show us is that as a direct result of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, that Jesus was put to death. So at the cost of his own life, he gives Lazarus life. He says, don't take him, take me. And so as he calls Lazarus out of the tomb, what is he doing? He is making room in the tomb for himself. And friends, that is the beauty, the story of Christianity. That is the crux of the difference. That is where God moves into your pain and your suffering, is that he occupies it. He occupies and takes up the hurt and the suffering that you can't imagine, because it's the suffering and the hurt and the pain of the whole world, not just your own. What does Jesus say to Martha? I am the resurrection. It's not just a future hope. It's a present reality. And wherever we begin to believe that, cold hearts begin to grow warm. Greediness begins to turn into giving. Hard-heartedness begins to turn into forgiveness. Dead stuff comes to life. Is there still a mystery to pain, to questions about why now, why me? When suffering comes, of course there is. But when it comes, what we know is that God, too, experiences it with you, that He experiences your loss because you see God the Father lost His only Son to bring you home. Jesus experiences loss, His own, and the Spirit experiences the loss, the pain and suffering of Jesus. And so, friends, don't be afraid. You are not on your own. He does not promise everything will work out according to how you want it to, but he says one day you will rise again, and that that rising again, that future promise has meaning now. So look for it this week. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would, in fact, make resurrection to be meaningful now, that we do long to the future that the meal that we're about to partake of points to, but I pray that just as you take some of that future 
promise into the promise of these elements, that you would make that real to us, that you would let it change us just as you nourish us with these elements, that you would nourish our spirit, and that the future would invade the present. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.